Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we call upon God to bind us together in covenant with Him, we realize we have fallen short of that, of His glory. So let's read from Isaiah 39, our call to confession today. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what, is, what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Thus far the word of the Lord. Hezekiah had put his political trust in a rising power, Babylon. And Isaiah convicts him of this and describes the consequences for his nation and for his own children. This is an important lesson for us. Our individual walk with the Lord will affect those around us intensely, for good or bad. As goes each citizen's spiritual state, so goes the state of that nation. And this works the other way too, top down, we'll see in the message today. God puts us in covenant with others, a family, a church, a nation, without asking our choice about it. You have obligations to them under God. And he orders your life this way because he is kind, because God doesn't want to leave you to your own devices, isolated and lonely. We need to thank God that we belong to Jesus in covenant and thank him for these sub-covenants in the Lord, for our family, church, and school, and state, people you are in relationship with for your good. We often want to retreat into ourselves like Hezekiah does. And there's a time and a place for that in the right way, but usually God doesn't want us to give to ourselves. He wants us to give to others and then to receive love from others. And we have to trust God that, that he will give us what we need instead of taking it for ourselves. This calls us to confess our sins. Oh, come, let us worship. Turn back to the sermon series in Nehemiah today. Nehemiah chapter 10. Follow along there. I'm using the New King James today. Nehemiah 10, 
I'll read the entire chapter. And I'm going to start actually in the verse just before, the last verse of chapter 9. Hear God's infallible word. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchijah, Hattush, Shabaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Hobadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Miyamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites, Yeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binui of the sons of Hinadad, and Kadmiel. Their brethren, Shabaniah, Hodijah, Kalita, Peliah, Hanan, Mika, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodijah, Bani, and Beninu. The leaders of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodijah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpaish, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Yadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaya, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Haloshesh, Pilha, Shobek, Raim, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Baana. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees, year by year, to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, 
for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And we will not neglect the house of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, and this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, again, we're back to Nehemiah here. It's been a while since before Palm Sunday. And we were right in the middle of something. So that's bothering me a little bit. So let's just try to uh, get back up to speed here. If you page back a chapter or two, remember chapter 8 is one of the climaxes of Nehemiah. There you see Ezra reading the law uh, to all the people. Remember that they weep when they uh, hear the law read, realizing uh, the extent to which they have not been keeping the law. And then chapter 9, they respond by confessing their sins. They pray. And chapter 9 is a long recounting of God's faithfulness. And at the very end of it, I began with that last verse again. What they do besides recounting God's faithfulness is make a resolution to do certain things, specific things, that really summarize God's law. So they're taking an oath, a covenant, together, writing it down, sealing it in a scroll uh, with all these names signed, promising to keep God's word. That's the summary of what's going on in this chapter. So uh, as, as a uh, bumper sticker way of thinking of this, uh, we're in the season of Easter. Uh, let's keep thinking about resurrection and what it looks like to, to be God's reborn people, right? That one thing that means is repentance. And one thing repentance means is, is resolution to obey God in every detail of life. You, you have that right in the Westminster um, uh, documents. I didn't think to put that in my notes, but one thing repentance is, it says, just going by memory and paraphrasing here, is a striving after a new obedience. That's part of repentance. And that's what they're doing here. So I want to look in, there's kind of three sections to this chapter. First you have the long list of names, and and then you have uh, verses 28 and 29. Those are a good summary of what's going on, so it's good to focus on those a bit. And then the rest of the chapter is all the details. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. They, they outline and specify several things, and we'll look at those as well. So first, this list of signers. This is an interesting list. I forget the exact number. There's a lot of them, something like 80 uh, uh, priests, Levites, and leaders signing here. Um, I want to take what might be considered a ne- negative spin on this a second. One thing that this list means is that not all of Israel's leaders were on board with this. The text could just as easily have said, all the priests and Levites and leaders took an oath. That's not what happened. And I've mentioned this before, and we need to remember this. If you page ahead to Nehemiah 13, you see one of those guys. Uh, Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Eliashib the priest has authority over the storerooms of the house of God. And he's allied with Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah is the Ammonite who's in league with Sanballat the, the Samaritan. Right? Verse 5, he had prepared for Tobiah a large room where they had stored the grain offerings before. So Eliashib, the priest, is in charge of the temple storerooms, and he gives this, the Ammonite some office space, basically, right in the temple. 
That would be kind of like us giving a third of our church budget to the local imam to administer. That's kind of what he's doing. Uh, So no, you're not going to find Eliashib's name in this list. He wants to work closely with the Ammonites and the Samaritans. And that's an unequal yoke that Nehemiah is saying no to. That's what's going on. Verse 28, these signers, they want to separate. That's the whole point here. They want a Jerusalem that will follow God's law and not compromise with other gods and worldviews. That's what they're after. Uh, I hesitated to do this because the analogy is quite imperfect, but you've got a list of signers here. And as I was writing this sermon, I looked up and I realized hanging on the wall right in front of my desk was a framed copy of the Declaration of Independence with a whole list of signers. So there's the John Hancock sitting right there as I'm contemplating the signers of of this. So it's an imperfect analogy, but there are some things alike, right? At the founding of our country, signing the Declaration was a big deal, right? Many would not sign it, for one thing, and, and those that did, they're giving legal evidence that you're opposed to British rule. You're putting your name on the chopping block, your head on the chopping block to do that. There's a similarity here. Both uh, our founders of our country and here in Nehemiah 10 both wanted to separate from something. They wanted to separate from Samaritans and Ammonites. They wanted to separate from British rule. Now, I think there's an important difference. The analogy isn't perfect. Uh, Our motive in this country was more political freedom than it was establishing Yahweh as the official God of the nation. I know that's controversial to say, but I think it's true. Um, but there is a similarity. There's, it's politically risky for both sets of signers to do this. There, there are powerful interests against them, like Eliashib the priest, who could prosecute, attack, and hang them for treason. So these are courageous leaders who are doing the right thing, who are purifying God's people from corruption, and, and pointing them to faithfulness to God. Uh, that we know almost nothing about any of these signers. But the point isn't to know about their specific life details. It's to realize there were a lot of men who were courageous and faithful, who were seeking to do the right thing. In every generation, this is true. I'm looking at a lot of them right now. This is true. And we need to remember that. So you have this list of signers. That's the first thing. Second, verse 28 and 29, and this gets to the heart of what they're doing, right? The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, gives you the whole list. Uh, All those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, they joined with these signers, basically, into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law given by Moses. That's the gist of it. So the point isn't just the names. These are the leaders there, that first 27 verses. But there are plenty more people who agree with them, whose names we don't know. And verse 28 is rather fascinating. Watch your verb tenses whenever you read and exegete the Bible. They had separated themselves. They had already done it. That's something of an encouragement if you think about it. Because it's true in every cultural situation like ours and Nehemiah's. When corruption and compromise seep into the church and the state, the faithful will renounce it and live against it, even if their leadership can't get its act together right away. 
And I think that's happening today, right, right now. Our, our leadership is having a hard time getting its act together. But there's a, a whole, there's hordes, multitudes of people, faithful, who are seeking to do the right thing. They have already separated themselves from the corruption they're, they're seeing and witnessing. We do not depend on others to live faithful lives, is another way to put this. When you read the news and you, you see that's an ungodly agenda that's, that's coming at us, and you think, man, we need, we need some political force to balance that and to defeat that, or I can't live a faithful life. It's that last part I'm disagreeing with. However the political battle goes, you can live a faithful life. Read Daniel, read Esther. When, when God's people are completely wiped out and exiled, you can still live a faithful life, God tells us. That's important. So don't look to others to work against the leftist agenda for you. Uh, Tucker Carlson, Daily Wire, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, pick who you want. Don't be thinking, I just can't do anything until they succeed. That's not how this works. No, the people had separated themselves already. And they're glad to sign on when their leaders finally figure it out. And that's what happens here. So all the people are covenanting together to obey God's law. Two other points on, on this that are very important. First, separation is the main action. Separation. Separation from compromise. Uh, most of us in the church world have done this. You used to go to that other church, but the gospel wasn't clear, and they were kind of waffly on cultural stuff. They hadn't really separated from secular ways of thinking. And so you went somewhere else to find a group of people who were more committed uh, to, uh, to a, a robust Christian worldview. That's what is happening in this chapter. This is a mirror image of what we're seeking to do. And the, the shocking thing, the weird thing is, I'm going to do my little historical jag here again, that this is the root of the movement that we call Phariseeism. The, Nehemiah and Ezra are the root figures of what you call a Pharisee. Pharisee in Hebrew literally means separate. And that's what they were doing, and it was a good thing. It was a good thing. And, and everybody's, I can, I can sense the tension in the room. You're like, what are you talking about? Pharisee is an absolutely negative thing in our minds. We think of that from a, a surface reading of the Gospels. Some verses, which we read today, seem to imply that every Pharisee was a rank hypocrite who took delight in imposing legalism on himself and everyone else around him. But there are other verses that we forget where the Pharisee asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus throws it back on him. And he gives a good answer. And Jesus says, good answer. That's right. You're not far from the kingdom. The Pharisee gets it right. Remember the factions. Sadducee, Zealot, Essene, Pharisee. Believe it or not, the faction that was closest to the truth was the Pharisee. We separate from evil where we must. That's the Pharisee. We obey God as best as we can. That's the Pharisee. We read our Bibles and we pray. That's the Pharisee. 
We stay engaged with culture where we can. That's the Pharisee too. These are godly goals. So what was the problem? Well, two problems. The problem became, first of all, self-righteousness and self-deception. Right? The Pharisee, doing all those good things, started to think this way. Well, I'm not a tax collector. I don't have corrupt dealings with the wicked. I read my Bible. I'm not woke when so many are. I march for life when so many don't. And Jesus says, you know, there was a second man who also went up to the temple to pray. And instead of saying all of that, he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's that one who's justified. You see, the action, the obedience is right, but the heart inside had gone sour and prideful. Clean the inside of the cup too, Jesus says. So self-righteousness is one of the problems of the Pharisee. The other problem was becoming overly separate, leaning towards the Essene, where, where you don't even want to talk to unbelievers. You're so disgusted with those trans people that if you ever met one on the street, you wouldn't have a civil word for them. Jesus confronts that error when he talks with the Samaritan woman at the well who has had five husbands and is now shacking up with a sixth guy. He's not disgusted with her. He just offers her the water of life. He knows she needs it. Do not get so wrapped up in cultural errors like feminism or whatever it is that you can't graciously offer the gospel to people who are obviously lost. Those were the problems of the Pharisee. But the, the separation was a godly goal that they're seeking here. Repentance, a, a resurrected life, means separation is the main action. And that's what they do. The other thing that's happening here is covenant. They enter into an oath and a curse, it says, which is hearkening uh, back to Deuteronomy language. Uh, so uh, covenant is an inward thing, and it's also an outward action, right? The inward thing is, is the heart resurrected, regenerated to beat and live again for God. Here we have the focus on the outward action. What happens because you have that faith? How are we going to live for God exactly? Well, we're going to agree together to do it, number one. We're going to sign on the dotted line, number two. They literally write their names down on a piece of paper. We're going to obey God's law. I'm going to swear an oath in front of everybody to be faithful to God. That's going to help me keep my word. That's going to help everyone around me to be encouraged seeing me to seek to be faithful to God too. This is how God orders our lives. This is why we have wedding ceremonies. You love each other before the day. But you aren't officially married until you say, I do, in front of the pastor and all of your people. <laughs> right? You've got to stand up front and say it out loud. That's what is going on there. Now, this applies also to, to baptism and to church membership. Why is it that God wanted every Israelite eight days old to be circumcised? So that there was a public act of the parents bringing their child to God, resolving to train them up in the fear of the Lord. Even when that means pain for the child, and I'm talking about the circumcision, right? That's a, that's a symbol of something. 
right? That is a symbol of something. It's good for us to hear each other say, I'm cutting off that sin and separating from it. There's going to be sin in my child's life. I'm washing my child in the blood of Jesus today and every day. I'm joining with this community and membership to build up this people in a strong faith to be built up myself. And that's going to mean some pain sometimes. It's going to mean things don't go the way I want. But we're doing this together. And we don't just assume these things are happening. It's good for us to hear each other say it from time to time. This is the point of Hebrews chapter 10, that verse where it says, don't forsake the assembling of each other, right? Well, that's the verse all the pastors always talk to when, you, when you're not at church enough, then they'll bring out Hebrews 10.24. Hey, you're, come on, Hebrews 10.24. Well, there's more around that than just go to church, right? Why? Before and after that verse, it says, because that stirs us up to love and good works. We're exhorting each other. Just with our presence, yes, but also because we say to each other and we say to the Lord in the presence of each other, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We often just kind of mumble through that creed, but realize what we're doing. How encouraging that is to us to say that to each other. So there's a revival here of, of resolution. That's what this covenant is all about. That's the second thing. The third thing, we have the details of the covenant. And this takes up the rest of the chapter from 30, verse 30 on. And this is where things start to get really interesting, if I wasn't controversial enough already. First of all, in verse 30, well, at the end of verse 29, notice, and this is just an English grammar thing, the New King James, at least, has a colon at the end of verse 29. Don't see this very often. And it's, I don't think it's in the ESV. But that's uh, interesting, and that's in, it's informative. You know, if you're a grammar nerd, you know that colon tells you, okay, what happened, what was said in verse 29, that was a summary, and now, and then you have a colon, so what comes after it, verse 30 on, that's all going to be detail, list, spelling out what was uh, asserted in the first part before the colon. I explained that badly, an English person could have done that better. Anyway, verse 30 then, it starts with, okay, here's the first example, here's what we're going to do. Verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Wow. Now, this was the big one in their day. The Samaritans and the Ammonites were pressing Israelites to intermarry with them. Let's just be all one happy people together. That was their goal. The people of the land is an important phrase you'll see a couple of times in those verses. That's basically an idiom for unbelievers, people who are not worshiping Yahweh or not worshiping Yahweh alone. So that's, that's uh, Nehemiah's uh, shorthand for unbelievers. So don't give your daughters to an unbelieving man. We're not going to do that. They resolve together. That's worth thinking about for a while. One way to fight a godly culture to degrade it, to downgrade it, is with some other culture. And that's what's happening these days. So that family across the street, they raised their daughter in Disney World, so she would never feel bad about herself. And I'm going to live my dreams, and it's going to be happy wife, happy life. That's how she thinks. What happens when the son that you've raised to be godly falls for her? 
Now you have a mixed marriage between a God of Israel and the God of self. And this was exactly Solomon's downfall. He loved foreign women. And it wasn't so much the problem that they were foreign. It wasn't that they were too beautiful. It wasn't even hardly that there were too many of them. It was that he indulged their foreign faith and built temples to their gods for them. So Israel covenants together and says, we aren't going to do that anymore. We're going to be willing to say no to our daughters and sons when she likes a boy, but his heart is not with the Lord. We're going to raise some questions, put up some roadblocks there. We're going to teach her about that before it gets to that point. This is something where sometimes we need to separate from our uh, secular conservative allies. There, there is a secular conservative outlook on this that just doesn't get this. It, it says, I know I'd do anything for my family. My daughter gets what she wants because she's my daughter. That's insane. You've got to train yourself and your children in self-denial. You can't just eat or drink or smoke whatever you want because it makes you feel good. And you can't just have that boy or that girl just because they make you feel good. God comes first. And some of those things are outside of his will. So we pursue spouses, careers, everything else in God's will. Of course, the New Testament says this, you know, marry who, who you wish in the Lord, Paul says. So that's verse 31. There's a lot more to go on. I just Quick summaries of all these uh, controversial, difficult topics. Verse 31 is next, which says, If the people of the land, there's that phrase again, bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. God forbade this in the fourth commandment. No gathering manna on the Sabbath. Don't do your usual work. Don't buy and sell on the Sabbath. This is a principle I think generally still applies today to Sundays. Others think it doesn't. Uh, I think it seems that Jesus, he wouldn't have taught on the Sabbath if he meant it to go away completely. Uh, that's a thought I had this week. But Jesus does say that sometimes necessity comes first. Uh, one illustration that I've kind of landed on, on on this whole, can you do X, Y, or Z on the Sabbath, on, on Sunday, uh, think of an, an illustration like this. Wives, if, if your husband wants to take you out to a really nice dinner date, you get all dressed up, and you're at the restaurant, you're having a great time, and then you think of some things that, you know, we, we could really use X, Y, and Z from Aldi and from Rural King on the way home. Let's just stop by the grocery store on the way home. Now, for some, maybe that's just perfectly fine. To me, that, it seems that that would downgrade the evening a bit, right? Wouldn't that dishonor that what your husband is trying to do for you? Your Lord wants to spend time with you on the Sabbath. So don't run off to other errands instead. Do what's fitting of his holiness and grace and kindness. That's another resolution that Nehemiah and these men make together. The Sabbath year for land and debts. Every seventh year, Israel was to let the land lie fallow and not plant. That's in, in the, the law of the Torah as well. They were to settle and forgive personal debts. What they're doing here, you see, they're, they're reestablishing the whole economic system 
uh, of, of this communal land-based system from God's law. Verse 32, now we get the temple tax. You see that in Exodus 30. Uh, every individual gives a third of a shekel. If you're, I think it's 20 years old to 60, something like that. Every individual. And, uh, and you give that to the, the, um, the temple so that it can be maintained. Uh, you may find a, a question there. If you look up Exodus 30, it's a half a shekel. And here it's a third of a shekel. Um, only reason I can think of that was the, the Persian currency was probably different. That's the only thing the commentators gave me that made any sense. Not sure what's going on there. Uh, but the temple tax funds the church account to keep the lights on, to get supplies like wood and water, priestly garments and maintenance. Uh, this is probably something that's a little separate from the tithe, which was for sacrifices and for supporting the priest and the Levite and for the widows and the poor. That you'll see further down in verse 35. And there's a long, detailed list there of all the things to tithe on. And I think that's deliberate. Scripture says to tithe on all your increase at one point in, in God's law. Anything God gives you, anything that grows in your care that you profit from, anything that you earn working a job, all your increase, whatever it is. A quick practical example on that for you younger people. If you're uh, just starting your first job or have recently, maybe you're mowing lawns or you're babysitting and you get $20, $40 for that, set aside $2, $4, put it in your Bible so you can take it to church the next Sunday. It's good to start tithing like that right away. Now you may think, well, that's crazy. That's such a small amount. Why would that matter? It isn't the amount that matters. Remember, Jesus tells that, us that directly. Jesus is way more impressed with the widow who puts in two cents than with the rich who put in a lot. It's the heart that matters. Are you giving God your life or are you storing it up for yourself? And the tithe is one check that God gives us to, to do a gut check on that. You know, when you start working or when you get a raise... The draw can be very strong to store it up for you. Ah, all this extra can go to savings, to the kid's college fund. And God's law is a helpful corrective. Just tithe on everything. <laughs> Anything that grows. I think Matthew 23 gives us a bit of a proof text to this. It does so in kind of a roundabout way. Remember, Jesus is, is um, rebuking the Pharisees for majoring on minors, basically, Right? And what does he say? You tithe on your, uh, I forget the three spices, cumin, uh, two other things, right? You're, you're tithing on the spices. You know, my wife is growing some spices outside, you know, the plants, they grow up. There you get some nice, man, my mind is totally blanking on the names of spices. Anyway, you, you know what I'm talking about. It, it, it smells great, tastes great, right? And, and Jesus says, you Pharisees are so particular, you're tithing on, on what grows there, and you're making sure to Cut measure and 10% of that goes to church, right? But you're forgetting far more important things, he says. And we all stop there and we say, yeah, what stupid people they were to tithe on their spices. Well, that's so dumb. Why would we want to do that? We don't, you don't have to tithe on your spices. And we don't read the next verse where Jesus said, you ought to have done the more major things without leaving the lesser undone. 
<laughs> now, keep the proportion in order. Don't lose that major point. But yeah, tithe on everything. I think Jesus says it right there. Again, w- w- what they're doing wrong was focusing on the tiny thing. The speck in the other guy's eye. And ignoring the big thing, the, their own egregious sins. Right? So, yeah, tithe on everything. That's uh, something, you know, you, maybe you're seeing the main point here. The, what they're doing here is they covenant to obey God's law that gets into every part of our lives. Obedience to God, God has made not just be a Sunday thing, not just a quiet time thing. We have to think about this when we do our budgets, when we talk to our kids, uh, when they start dating. That's, that, that's, that shapes everything. Uh, verse 38, moving on. The other side of the tithe is those receiving it. Right? And I think verse 38 is important there. Find that back a minute. Verse 38. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. That's fascinating. And I think that's just a realistic thing. There's a rough equivalent there to pastor, elder, and deacon. Right? Together, they administer the funds. So no one's embezzling or taking advantage. That's very important. When we're taking in the offering, someone is with someone else so that you know what's going on. Very important. Now, I'm going to close by going big picture here. Uh, We're talking about covenants, right? Covenants have stewardship and flourishing in mind. God means for most of your life to be like this. There's a commitment, you to them and them to you. You're in some kind of relationship like that. There's blessing in you giving to them in one way, and they give to you in another way. Most of life can be described like that. Let's just run through four quick examples, and then we'll quit. The, 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 big, the major gospel one, of course. God saves us, and he puts us in union with Christ. This is the ultimate covenant. Right? The purpose is to glorify Christ, to restore us, to do the works that we were made to do. That adorns the gospel. It glorifies our Father in heaven. There's a covenant there. God has given us things, forgiveness, a new life. We are to return and serve God and serve him with obedience, gratitude, joy, etc. That's covenant. There's a marriage covenant. Right? It's not good for a man to be alone. A man needs a mission. A wife is a part of that mission. He, he serves her. She multiplies back to him the seed that he gives to her. And fruit results. There's a, there's a covenant there, in, both in the physical goings-on and also the relationship. There's a covenant in, in the state as well. There's, there's a relationship that the citizen has to the government. The citizen uh, does certain, gives certain things to the state. The state gives other things to the, to the citizenry, right? The citizens pay taxes. They live in a way that helps the republic. The government uses those to provide services and to serve the people. There, there's a kind of a covenant there. Same in the church. Christians tithe to the church that they go to. They give their time and attendance. And they receive back from the church teaching, a, a worship service, a way to serve those in need, Many other things. Fellowship together. This this covenant life is built into us. And we need to see that and and lean into it. Uh, What are my covenant obligations to my people? Who are my people? 
How do I uh, serve? You, you see what they're doing here. They're first, they're, they're signing on the dotted line. They're resolving in covenant to do this. And then they're laying it out specifically. What is that going to mean exactly? And notice where they look to find that out. They go to God's word, to God's law. That's the summary of what's going on here. That's a good description of the resurrection life. Let's continue to live together in covenant together by the grace of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us uh, your grace, for uh, setting us within families, within churches, within countries, uh, neighbors and communities, where we can learn and grow and be um, nurtured in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, spur each of us on to this, Some of us are in leadership positions, and we need to learn first to serve and also to lead as well, lead others in serving. Help us, Heavenly Father, as you uh, grant us uh, wisdom and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in this faith, in the covenant of grace you have given us. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, who is the ever-living word. And so we sing as we taught us to The Lord's Supper is a covenant sign. So we can expect the same covenant dynamics I was just talking about. First, there is God's sovereign initiative to save us. God doesn't adopt us into his family. He doesn't set us at his table, feed us his food because of anything that we've done. He just wants to save us and make us his people, his family. It's salvation by grace. And then the other side of the covenant is our response. We want to tell the world that we belong to Jesus, that we trust him, that we will do what he says. So we take the bread and the wine that Jesus offers. We eat and drink. What better way could God design for us to say with our actions, I trust what you're giving me to feed and help me, not hurt me. That's Jesus. He he feeds, he helps you. So trust him today as we eat and drink here at his table. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.